Welcome to a new episode of Obsessed with ABGs, Aspirations, Boardrooms, and Goals. I'm Kimberly in Canada. And I'm Reina in Germany. Being friends halfway across the world isn't stopping us from talking about our careers, Asian identities, and life in general. We're basically each other's hype woman, and we want to be yours as well. Welcome to Obsessed with ABGs. Welcome back to season two of Obsessed with ABGs. I hope you guys missed us. They definitely did. <laughs> well, we're so glad that everyone's listening. We hope you had enjoyed a bit of a break from us. But, you know, we did intentionally want to line up season two with new beginnings. Um, this is like a perfect time to talk about what we usually talk about on day to day. And we know New Year's was not that far off for a lot of people. This is a good time for goal setting for maybe, you know, looking at what's in store for you this year. Um, and for those who are still, you know, struggling with the pandemic and whatnot, it's a nice time to come back, reassess and hope that you're still on your I guess, your New Year's resolution and if you're on track. Exactly. So, you know, if you forgot to do any goal setting or, you know, you haven't had the chance to do any for the beginning of 2021, here's another chance for you. And so with that, um, we wanted to introduce today's episode with a new beginning, a new change, you know, new goal setting and a new aspect for us and for our podcast. So I would like to introduce our special guest for today. Um, please welcome Renee Soon. Renee is one of my very good friends and is a restaurant and travel writer and a photographer in Toronto, Canada. Um, in her previous life, she pursued a doctorate in cardiovascular sciences, which is so completely different from what she currently does. And so we're so excited to ask her everything about it. She is a columnist at Singtel's Elite Gen magazine and a regular contributor to Toronto Life, WestJet Magazine, and Nuvo. Other places you may have seen her are the Globe and Mail, Toronto Star Travel, En Route on Air Canada Flights, CBC Life, Best Health, Bon Appetit, and Wall Street Journal. So if you've ever seen really good travel writing and beautiful photos of food, it's probably Renee's work. Um, she was also a recipe editor and a senior contributor to Inspired Cooking. And take this, she was also a guest judge on Iron Chef Canada. So really, there's nothing that Renee has not done. So uh, with that, um, Renee, welcome to Obsessed with AVGs. No, thank you so much for having me on, ladies. It's a, uh, it's definitely a different, a different way that I guess I'm interacting with people because usually I'm on the other side. I'm the one asking questions, interviewing, and not the subject of anything. So I'm honestly kind of nervous. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> Oh my gosh, you're, you no. put me I'm in so... my, like, not my comfort zone. I'm better behind, I guess, behind the scenes. Uh, usually I like to put the spotlight on others. So to hear, you know, Raina kind of give my, my, I guess, my background, it's like, yes, that's true, tick, tick. But I, I feel like it's also very odd. It's, it's strange, <laughs> you know? I guess I've done those things. Well, okay. So we, we've said all this. This is the bio that we have, but. Tell us really about yourself. Like what are, okay, if, if those are the things you're like, oh, that's just so I like, how would you tell the audience if all you have to explain, here's Renee in a nutshell, how would you present it? Oh, gosh. Um, I just say simply that, you know, I am a Toronto-based 
freelance restaurant and travel writer and photographer. Um, my main thing is I like to um, travel the world in search of you know memorable tastes and the stories behind the plate. Um, that's my main thing. I'm I feel like I'm a storyteller. Uh, hence the whole you know I'm comfortable with being behind the scenes and asking you know the the individual or the uh, the restaurant or whatever, like whatever the subject is, uh, and trying to showcase that and, and I guess, uh, uh, explain why they are so interesting to, to my, my reading audience. Um, generally I would say my, my main, my main speciality is the Canadian food scene, food scene and the culinary personalities, uh, behind that. Um, so, but other than that, uh, it's basically where we fit in the, the grand scale of the the global culinary uh so it's it's food related uh travel related uh and definitely related to stories that's beautiful i'm so like in awe right now that you get to do this for a living it's it's pretty it's pretty swell i have to say you know um it's it's been a real treat okay how all right so like we did say that you came from a cardiovascular science I guess you were pursuing your doctorate. Uh, how did you get into becoming a writer, photographer, and traveler? And like, how did you do that pivot? Because that just seems so different. We'll be honest. I, I really think it's about being in the right place at the right time. Uh, and most importantly, having the interest. Because I didn't get into this whole thing thinking that it would become a career. Um, although I think when when we first, I mean, for anyone who loves food, even as a child, and if you see, you know, like reviews in newspapers or magazines, I'm sure everyone's flirted with the idea thinking, you know, I can do that. Or maybe one day I can contribute something like that. But uh, for most, uh, including myself, I thought, you know, that'd be that'd be a cool thing to do to maybe dabble in. Um, like I didn't think that, that I would actually end up ever doing that as a, as a real profession. Um, so I did enter into all of this in a non-traditional way. Uh, as you mentioned, you know, I, I came from a science background. Um, and I think that it's probably those different skill sets that I have uh, in contrast to a lot of my colleagues who might have a journalist background that has helped me thrive in this relatively new part of the industry. Um, and on top of that, having a speciality in a portfolio when we're talking about food, uh, which was still kind of growing at the time when I started, uh, really helped too. So it was completely new field. Uh, there wasn't already established procedures or protocols. And I think that's what helped make it possible that someone with a completely 180 degree different uh, skill set background could actually enter into it. Um, so if you really want to know the long story of it all, I can probably relate it back to the fact that, you know, um, as as we all can see each other and uh, chat with each other on, we, we know we're Asian. So I feel like as an Asian growing up, uh, you always had that whole, so whole go-getter uh, mindset, you know, you always accept, uh, excelled at mm -hmm. academics, you always um, pursued all those extracurricular mm -hmm. activities, you basically filled your, your dance card with everything. And so in my early nerdier years, um, and probably still am, but in my early nerdier years as um, um, junior high all the way through university, I was a yearbook editor. So if anything, that combination of taking photos, you know, writing text to go with, along with it, recording moments um, that are happening and relay them in blurbs was always something kind of that I'd been doing. So when 
when this whole thing started, I was still a grad student and being a grad student, you're limited in your budget, but I'd always like to eat because, you know, we're Asian and you know how with, with that, um, every celebration, anything, it's almost, I don't want to say it's an excuse to eat or eating is the excuse why people come together, but everything is related to eating. It's a huge part. Exactly. So I, I'd always like to eat and there wasn't a question about that, but I did know the main difference between what I was eating and served in restaurants and what you have at home is knowledge like the application how do you make things you know you can transform the same chicken into a billion different things but if you only know how to do it one way that's all you're going to do so um i read cookbooks you know i'd watch t- food tv back when it was more cooking cooking shows than you know like reality shows um i even did a couple classes at george brown which you know in toronto for anyone who's listening, I guess, uh, and they don't know, it is one of the culinary schools here. So I've done some basic cooking classes um, until I realized, you know, what I wanted to learn. I probably can get more from experimenting in the kitchen and whatnot. And so I did a lot of that. And I'd always considered the kitchen as kind of like the science lab in your home. And being, a, you know, a scientist, it just made sense to me. So that's where I really went in and completely nerded out breaking things down so that I could um, understand either uh, certain food things or recipes better um, and then in that sense appreciate what made what the professionals do so much more delicious than you know what we normally typically achieve Um, at home but at the same time I also realized that you can only improve yourself if you also dine out so with what little bits of you know grad money that I had um, on those rare occasions where I'd go out I'd really research or uh, dig into those plates and try to understand exactly what was what was on my plate and I would take that arsenal of knowledge with me from when I went out to go back into the kitchen and try to mimic it so I would try to recreate stuff that I might have eaten outside Um, and and so that was one of the ways of understanding food and I guess the process of of cooking. Um, The other thing of of going out, and I'm not saying you're going out a lot because like I said, you're still limited in budget as a grad student, Um, but I'm still going out and not just to the all-you-can-eat sushi places or whatnot. You know, I try to go, you understand what I mean, right? (laughs) I'd I'd go out to, you know, some of the relatively uh, decent restaurants around the city, you know, places that others might have lauded saying it's, you know, the uh, the benchmark of its, if it's particular type of cuisine. And like I said, you know, if I try what the experts have done with a certain dish, then maybe, then I'll understand what that certain dish is supposed to be like. Um, and so having done all that, friends would then come back and ask, you know, for recommendations for restaurants because they're like, you've gone to these places or I've got a special occasion, where should I go? Um, And after a while, it just seemed easier to put together an an email list. (laughs) And I guess this was before like newsletters or anything, but then, you know, I'd write it all out in an email. Anyone who wanted to be on the email list, I'll just pop their name on it. And then, you know, these email blasts of like, quote unquote, mini reviews would go out and whoever wanted to read it or was interested, they can just refer to that or forward it to their friends or whatnot. Um, And a friend at that time was starting a review site. And so I should preface this all by saying that we're talking about like the early 2000s. So it's been a while back. (laughs) You're ahead of the curve. So like like I said, this is like right place, right time. We're talking before all this really is now a mainstay. So around early 2000s, um, he had started this and there was a few of us contributing. Um, 
And it took off because there weren't too many sites. I think there were like some food blogs uh, and then uh, maybe some blogs that had experiences of people going to restaurants, but nothing I think that was in this sense curated as just restaurant reviews. I, I'm so curious. Um, yeah, like, okay, was, but your intention when you did the list, I'm so curious now, was the intention to be like, oh, I'm just going to have like whoever's interested here, my friends, or you're like, like at what point were you like, this list is going to be the list that like jump starts my career? I'm so curious. None of it, actually. It was just like I said, you're doing it for interest or when I got into this it was just for interest. And I never really expected all this to happen. Um, and so like that friend of mine who said, you know, you've got all these um, reviews or all these write ups. Can I just put them on my website? And I'm like, sure, it's already done. Like, it's not not a it's not a big deal. Maybe I'll just update some things, you know, um, put in, if, you know, I go back to a restaurant, then I can, uh, rewrite them or whatnot. And so we had, we had, I guess, uh, there was a few of us who had contributed to it and it did well. And actually, if anything, I think it was partly responsible for him landing his dream IT job. Cause I think his hiring manager had said, Oh, I've heard of this site. And I'm not saying it's the real reason, but I can say for sure that it's the reason why the site then, uh, slowly faded afterwards because I mean then he had a full time gig and and then it was just a lot of time because this is what we were doing on the side so uh, around that same time when that first site website uh, was starting to kind of go on hiatus another friend uh, decided and we're talking still in like fifteen years ago it's it's still a relatively early in this food web sphere um, he started he wanted to do a a food review web portal, uh, which was something I I think was pretty novel at the time. Um, and he had somehow assigned me all the high-end Asian foods. I, I don't know how I got that category, but maybe yeah, I'm just like, <laughs> oh, on my grad budget? Okay. So I remember I gathered uh, a, a bunch of material for it and then it just never launched. So here I was sitting on, you know, some photos. I had notes from places like Lai Wahin at the time and all these places that I'd spend my own money on and I didn't have a home for. So this is long convoluted story of how I think what really like what really happened in my jump started my quote unquote uh, food writing career. Uh, for some reason, I stumbled on Flickr, and I don't know if many people know of Flickr. That as oh, a, yeah. as a it's still around, right? Yes, like, it is, and it has to be because I'm still active on it. <laughs> really? Like, so super, like, this is exactly it. I know I'm so old school. Everyone's like, "What do you mean you're not on Instagram?" I'm not on Instagram. I'm still on Flickr. They're like. It's not 2008, Renee. You know, get on, get on Instagram. For those listening, we're going to open one behind her back. And we're yeah, like you have no idea. Account. I think I've been tagged um, with differing, differing like handles, different hashtags, everything that I, I don't know, all sorts of combinations and like permutations of my name, uh, because people oh. think that you know those individuals are me. So for all those Renee students out there. I apologize if you get these random food tags or Kim, these- are you looking it up right now? <laughs> I think I add okay, no, I'm serious because I'm like I looked up your I was look because your Twitter handle I thought may have been over into Instagram. So I looked it up and I'm like, oh, that is definitely not Okay, so I never looked at that. So that's a look the look on your face looks very scandalous. <laughs> so that is not me. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 I'm sure I'm sure it's you know, she okay, so let's just when I wrote it in, I got a Renee Sen, God's favorite child, actor, 21.1K followers. But it's like, 
this like young teen child actress like you know and i'm like i don't with like zero food on her her insta like maybe yeah wow yeah okay that could be my alternate persona you know <laughs> you heard it here first when everybody I can imagine that i'm exactly uh, like you know this um obviously out of date uh lady who takes pictures of her food and still on Flickr, and then this is the alternate persona of this child <laughs> actress but this is what launched your career then so so essentially i had posted all those pictures like i mentioned and all the captions and everything you know like the way that i had always learned in yearbook you know you put all the the five W's and the, you know, and the how's kind of thing. You put all the information out there. And so I had all these, I guess, photos with uh, really clear captions of what was going on, what was happening, even with food, you know, like, what is this? Where is this from? Why is it interesting or whatever else um, that I had in my captions? And if anything, um, I think it was because of that, plus the timing of, of, um, individuals or of publications looking for food content that it all worked in my favor because here even on a platform like Flickr at that time wasn't really inundated with food pictures as the internet is now either so even if you're looking for um, for pictures of food or about Toronto food scene or individuals who are obsessed with food that like I guess I was at the time there's there's only a, a select number of accounts. Um, and I should say that because of that, that's also where I also met a lot of uh, some like some food friends that I'm still close to to this day. Because at that time, there's only so many people who were kind of with that same mindset. That being said, um, around the time, what was that, 2000s? Uh, that was also the time when digital media was starting to become a thing. Um, so I think that's that ca- combination of food photos, you know, those captions where I would explain in detail about what's on a plate, the fact that, you know, this was a relatively niche topic, even back then, uh, and online websites were looking for food content. That's really how I got started. So Indie Toronto Food website that gave me that chance was a one that was called Tasteo. I don't know I if you heard that. of it. So Cheryl Kirby and Greg Clow, they uh, husband and wife team, they ran it. And um, it was also the first time that I had a taste of working with an editor while contributing something original, like every two weeks. So having a regular deadline, uh, working with someone in a more professional or formal capacity uh, from having had any of that before was really, I think, instrumental. And were you still pursuing your... your... I was still yeah and I was just to say and I was still doing this when I was in my grad studies but I mean that's the thing is that then this became a hobby right like it was like every two weeks I had something to file or check out something um and where my you know colleagues might be reading a book or something I might be out looking at all the interesting you know October breads that are happening in around the city or whatever else it would be um and then from there the opportunities kind of grew um and I had the chance to start out with the food section of Toronto Life Magazine's digital platform and that was like 12 12 years ago <laughs> and I'm still with them so you know they've been really great with me um and I'm so thankful for them uh and the opportunities there but you know it's kind of growing with the Toronto food scene um along with that digital platform and then uh, how this all started becoming a more of a, a regular thing was that around the end of my studies, I wasn't seeing a lot of opportunities in either the academic field or in industry, which is what I was really keen on um, in terms of what I was doing in my field of work. And a lot of my colleagues were having to do a second or third postdoc or had to 
go into sales or, or other kind of positions, which wasn't something I was completely thrilled about. So I thought, you know, this, this interest in food in the media seems to be growing. Like, again, it's about in late 2000s, about that time when that sort of, it's, everything started to boom. And, and I saw that as an opportunity to just try it for a year, see where it goes. If it doesn't work out, then I can always get back into the lab or whatever. Um, and that was probably about 2011, 2012. And this is where I am now. So I've got to say, you know, it's not been easy, but since then, you know, I've been really lucky, I think, to be able to work with amazing people and then have the opportunity to work in print, um, other outlets across Canada and U.S. and internationally, you know, have the chance to put stories in newspapers, have some columns of my own, and, you know, just see how the whole food sphere has grown, you know, in the last decade. At what point did it become a Toronto, Canada to international global you know, excursion or, or, you know, career for you? What was that pivot point? I think the the thing is that, you know, even when I was traveling, and the, I guess this this is where the, you know, I loved my grad work. Don't get me wrong. I do miss it. There are times where I'm kind of going, you know, I, I love this. I don't say the simplicity of the scientific process in the life, but, you know, you had things that you did. You had, you know, you went in, did experiments, you got your results, you came back out, you know, you had that sort of process, whereas this is the constant hustle with uh, with freelancing. Um, and, and I like that. I like that, I guess, intellectual repartee with some of my colleagues, too, where you can super nerd out on like really niche topics where everyone else was just like, you know, I don't I really don't care about all of this. But for you, like the two people in the world where this is like the thing, you know, I miss that. Um, but that being said, uh, the great other thing with uh, besides, you know, the the nerdiness of, of what scientific uh, life can be was also the chance to travel uh, to give talks uh, on my work uh, during my grad studies. And like I said, when I went away and did that, you know, my colleagues might do other things like say they go skiing or they might visit a museum or whatever else. And I would learn about a city by going to its restaurants or checking out its local food scene. So, you know, that's how I gained the culture and such. So, um, or connected with the individuals there and the cultures there. Uh, so in that sense, that whole international food interest had already been fostered even when I was uh, as young as a child, but all the way even in, in my academic career. Um, so when I had the chance to start writing about the Toronto food scene, a lot of times I would also relate it to what I might have experienced elsewhere. I'm so curious. Um, what is like the wildest combination that you've encountered? That's a really hard question because I feel like I, I know I'm an adventurous eater. Uh, there is nothing I won't eat. Um, there are certain things I don't enjoy, um, but it doesn't mean that I won't try everything once unless it's number one. There's two things. One thing is poison. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't think it's necessary to eat poison. I don't think that there's <laughs> any pleasure in trying poison. Um, Wait, is that a thing in the food community? Well, I mean, like, there's, well, if, if you ever heard of fugu, like, I feel right now, you know, like, it's like the blowfish, yeah. The blowfish, the pufferfish. And, oh, okay. And from my understanding, from those who have eaten it, because, like I say, I'll do my research because it's poison. So none of that just sounds like number one, safe or enjoyable. Um, but people have told me that, I guess, in order to have, you know, any sorts of, derive any kind of pleasure from this flavorless fish, is that they have to lace a little bit of the toxin on it so you get that tingly feeling. But of course, if you've got 
you know, someone who doesn't know what they're doing or hasn't done it correctly, or if you get exposed to too much of it or whatever, you can die. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know if that sounds like a good risk. <laughs> I don't feel like dying Especially today. Especially if it doesn't taste good. <laughs> and, you know, I'm, no, not interested. So that's one thing I haven't tried. Um, and I really honestly don't have an interest in. Uh, the other thing that obviously I've had and, you know, uh, being Chinese, uh, it is... No, if you'd call it a delicacy, but it is a food substance. Um, it's bang. And I do not in any way, shape, or form enjoy that at all. And if you know what bang is, it's the anal sphincter, you know, of like a pig or whatever. And, you know, it essentially tastes like what it held, which is poop. And I've not had poop myself, but, you know, it has a very funky aroma. And I'm like, no, that's just not enjoyable to me. So that's also like a delicacy that really? that a lot of people enjoy and eat. And I'm like, you know, I can appreciate it for what it is, but it doesn't necessarily mean that I like it. So poison is a no-no. Anything that tastes like shit, no thank you. <laughs> you know? It's not my thing. And I love that you said that I you appreciate it for what it is because there's no disrespect in what you've said. Right. It's just mm -hmm. that you just happen to not enjoy these things. It's not my thing. There was a really good episode in This American Life um, a couple of months ago where a journalist or a producer goes and actually explores Bung. And he had heard about it because um, he read somewhere that when you eat calamari at restaurants, you actually don't know if it's squid or if it's Bung. What? So he went on this whole like investigative like journalism piece and he goes and talks to people and why it's a delicacy and like the history behind it. So again, with him too, like there's no disrespect to it, but you know, the conclusion is that yes, it is, you know, a poop sack. I don't personally think that there's anything wrong with eating, say if it is um, bung replaced or calamari rings replaced with, you know, bung rings i don't know that sounds just everything about that that just doesn't sound right at all <laughs> but you know as long as 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 if it is being sold in a restaurant that it's transparent to the consumer if you're mm. trying to pull the wool over someone's eyes then i think that's uh that's completely you know that's totally wrong that's obviously um not a good thing at all but if you are transparent saying that mm. that's exactly what you're offering and if there, like I said, there's a lot of people who really enjoy bung, so they will jump all over it. Uh, and if it's prepared properly, I'm sure it won't taste like, you know, crap, literally. <laughs> uh, and, and it would have really redeeming features uh, in the same way some people don't like calamari and, and whatever else. So if they feel like they want the land equivalent to that sort of that springy texture, they have an option. Um, uh, as long as you're not making a false sale, I think that it's everything's it's fair actually just to pivot because you talked about so many like really cool things that you've done in your career and just like exploring uh i just want to know you let's let's bring it back to the border of allies because you've done all this amazing stuff and you've turned you've pivoted your hobby into a full-fledging career um you come from an asian like you, you mentioned from a, you know a chinese background did your family have any concerns mm. or <laughs> your face was, oh, you can't see this, but her face was like, Ugh. 
I would love to know at what point did your family chime in? So I, I think the only one I can really say is really my mom. Um, when I first, um, I don't even know if I first told her I'm going to be a restaurant writer or anything because number one, when I was doing my graduate work, so I was doing um, graduate work in academic research right in medical science which to me just made sense because it just means like I'm a scientific researcher you know I'm just I'm in the lab doing all that but my mom's like I I don't understand like I'm trying to explain to Auntie Mary that you kind of you're like (laughs) a doctor but you're not like a doctor (laughs) and you work on like medicine but you don't actually treat people (laughs) and She was so like, I'm trying to support you, but I don't, basically, I don't know what the hell you do. And I'm like, mom, this is like my my dedication of my life to scientific research. And you have no idea like that, you know, what that meant. So so this is, by the way. This is a so much nicer version of like my parents and like Kim's parents who were like, yeah, I think our daughter has something to do with the internet, you know, because like <laughs> we both did like media and communication. So at least for you, you're still working on like medicine and stuff. Our parents were like, yeah, something with the Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> and they still say the Facebook. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I feel like my mom understands the Facebook more than she understands still to this day what I was doing back then. <laughs> but um, that being said, when I got more involved in this area and she realized, oh, wait, you go out and you eat and you somehow write about places you eat. She's like, I remember one time over a conversation, she's like, Uncle Tony has a relative who was a food critic and he got gout and he has, you know, gastrointestinal cancer. <laughs> you should do this or you'll get gout and gastrointestinal cancer, too. And I'm like, Mom, are you serious? <laughs> so, yeah. You will get cancer and die. Yes, exactly. So, and I was just like, there are probably a lot of other sort of ailments that I could suffer from, like, you know, indigestion and whatever else. But no, just because one relative of a, of a friend of hers, uh, unfortunately, you know, had had some issues there that that was when, what she associated with possibly being involved with food. So. So what does she tell your your her your aunts and uncles now? It's like Auntie Mary now. <laughs> well, I don't know if she, if she really talks about that, but every so often I know that uh, I get um, messages from either relatives or whatnot that uh, could be related to like some of the articles that I've written, and I'd be like, yeah, I know because that that's my name on top. <laughs> you know, thanks that's for the sharing that back. Thanks for sharing that back with me, just in case I wanted to learn about this place that, you know, oh, I wrote about. Thanks. So I don't, that kind of goes with the whole, who really reads my material or who really knows what I do? But I, I do know that um, my family and uh, and including my mother now knows, understands what I do. And it, they, they seem to have that sort of living vicariously th- through me kind of interest. Um, I'm not quite sure if she still worries about my health uh, in the same <laughs> way. <laughs> because obviously I'm eating now, right? If anything, sometimes she's just like, oh, make sure you sleep because you obviously look like you're traveling. Well, up until pre, you know, pandemic um, that I was traveling a lot. And maybe now with that whole, you know, yin yang thing, you're eating a lot of fried or fatty foods. Maybe you should take some time to look after your health and ah. drink some, you know, the Chinese soups and, and medicines and stuff, which, you know, obviously we have all the time in the world, you know, as working women to to sit by the stove and do stuff like that. Like, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just have another glass of water and maybe sleep 15 <laughs> more minutes. I don't know. 
<laughs> and on the topic of travel, so um, I want to go back to pre-pandemic days. How often were you traveling to eat and write and take photos? And where were you going? It would have been at the height, probably right before the pandemic. I was out of town maybe two thirds of the year. So I, there were there were a wow. few stretches where um, for like three months, I would only be in Toronto mm -hmm. literally to change my luggage um, or maybe, you know, a little less than 24 hours in town before I'm out again. So uh, there were some stretches that were, were crazy where I was just out of the country most of the time. And then then you hit usually it's around the high high season where, you know, most people would go travel. Like, so right now, like, well, winter time or Christmas time when everyone's traveling or certain parts of summer, those are usually when I would either be here or I might be in the opposite side of the world. Cause that's usually how, how the, the industry works. Um, so between those commissions and then between, uh, sorry, between commissions and then my own travels, at least half to uh, two thirds of the year, I won't be in the city, in, in the city. Um, because it could be just across Canada as well. So that's been really interesting this past 10 months, 10 months now, uh, to be home and literally in these four walls. It's good to know my home that, you know, I've had all these years. Uh, but I'm also one of those uh, very conservative individuals where, you know, I know I've had my opportunities to travel and go and explore elsewhere um, as much as I could pre-pandemic. And now I'll do my part as, you know, a citizen and I'll stay home. Like, where am I to go? You know, so I've pretty much been home 99.99% once a week at most if I go pick up groceries, but I'm always inside, not even outside. Yeah. So it's a, it's a real flip from where it was before where I'm just out and about all the time every day. What does the work look like now that we're facing, you know, COVID-19, the pandemic? How has your work pivoted into that space? Uh, so I'm, I'm really thankful uh, in the sense that I'm still working. I'm still uh, actually now that we're talking right now, I just I file, I think, maybe five deadlines this week and I've got three more <laughs> this coming week. Um, and it's nice because uh, as a freelancer, you're only paid when you're when you've got commissions in your work. You know, you could technically I know some other friends are like, you know, you could take holiday and time off anytime. I'm like, yes, but that also is a direct uh, reflection of what you won't mm -hmm. see on your paycheck too. So it's always been a constant nonstop sort of thing. And so when the pandemic uh, and, and the closures of everything, uh, the seizure of travel and everything started last middle of last March, uh, I will confess, you know, the first few months were really concerning. Um, I have at least uh, a few staples um, column. I have column with a Chinese English publication that, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, they took uh, a hiatus on one issue. So, but then they continued publishing afterwards. So, I had I've had an opportunity to work with them afterwards. Um, like places like Toronto Life, they had done their pivot to cover not like their their material, but then with that pandemic spin. So, I was able to also be a part of of their uh, contributor list there to to put together that sort of content. Um, but the first three months, I have to confess, you know, it was really concerning because some of the long mainstays that I had, some big publications, um, airline magazines especially, they either seized um, or they let go of their staff or um, they folded, you know, and really concerning because it just means that if the industry can't really survive 
that initial shock. And that was just the first part of the pandemic. We're not talking about now, a year later, and then what's going to happen as repercussions afterwards, then what's going to happen, you know, down the long run and in down the road um, and then to see a lot of really great people let go from their jobs as well or others um, in similar boats who are losing their opportunities it just makes it all harder too because you know that when you are looking for last few remaining uh, freelance opportunities now you also have other really excellent and capable individuals also in that pool to all win that same one you know opportunity Actually, now that you, you 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 made a great point about this industry being really competitive already as is, and with COVID now happening, it's even more. I guess it's it's getting smaller because all these publications might be folding and whatnot. Let's talk about also what this industry looks like for those who are trying to get into it. Because you being a female Asian, I don't know what in terms of representation looks like in this industry, especially from your point of view of writing and showcasing the work. And, um, you know, not many people see female Asians uh, in this capacity, right? Usually, I don't actually what capacity they see us in. (laughs) So like, what does that makeup look like um, for yourself in terms of your identity and even your gender? To be completely honest, because I've always been a freelancer. Um, I've never really needed to go into any of the offices. So I don't know what the general, um, I guess, makeup of mm. the, the industry that, you know, is, except for what I am privy to in my own interactions. Um, so in terms of that, you know, I feel like maybe it's the time that I'd come into this that, oh, geez, it's, it's, it's interesting. Like now that you make me think about it, I think the majority of editors, if not everyone that I've worked with, are actually all women. That's so really now good that to I hear. think, yeah, no, that's that's a real good, like the cool, pretty cool realization. Whether or not, I mean, they're all women, which is number one. That's that to me right now. It's like, oh wow, I never actually thought of that. Uh, it's it's great. Um, but in terms of if you if you say like the demographics in terms of the racial makeup, um, I still think like it's better these days. I think we we're seeing a lot more persons of color um, being able to to have the roles that, you know, traditionally might have been um, been individuals who are Caucasian and male. I, I think that there's just more opportunities out there and there's still not as many as I think what we're all aiming to have, but that's starting to, I think, gain traction and um, and we're starting to see a lot more individuals of color uh, be able to, to shine and, and take on um, more senior roles. Um, and I, next year, like, it sounds, it sounds so cliche. Um, you know, the whole thing, I don't see color, I don't, but I don't interact with anyone. So besides a name on their email, <laughs> if you understand what I mean, like, as and a I usually, freelancer, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's like, and I, the usual, the real thing is that, you know, it's just the first name usually. So it's not like I'm analyzing the name as a, as a person, like, you know, of what background, as long as I think, and, and I feel like food is pretty universal. So it's not like a lot of times we have to, consider well minus my trying to when I do write about um foods that have more of a cultural significance or anything that might be related I'll try to be very sensitive to you know maybe the appropriate language or how things are presented um you know you don't you know like the type of descriptors that you use even if you're not used to something maybe um uh, you know not put everything in a very more neutral or positive light you know because it, it like if you said uh 
and this is kind of really a sidetrack. If you said some some sort of dish or a sauce was like um, muddy or mushy or whatever else, you could use all these sort of more negative descriptors, or you could say, you know, like a very smooth and creamy or very pureed substance, which doesn't sound like any of you know anything negative, and it might just be that um, that's just how that particular thing is. But your choice of language can be also very. Um, it's not like say telling, but it can also help. If exactly, Subjective. exactly. So, I think it's just that um, with with uh, the topic that I thankfully you know ha- have a chance to to be um, I guess a storyteller in like food and also in and we're talking about travel. We're not just talking about travel. Like go here, see this, and do that. Um, a lot of times I try to look for you know inherent story. Like there might be a vendor who's been doing something like this, or there might be a a, a personal story of of um, of someone in an, in a city or village and how they've carved out whatever else it could be that, uh, that they're now known for, they've contributed to the community. Um, it's just being very respectful. Um, and then, and then helping convey that to readers. Hopefully that will interest them as much as I thought that they were interesting too. I, I'm wondering, um, how does your identity as an Asian Canadian play into your profession? Possibly when I've been asked or uh, to um, explore either food or food scene or from an Asian Canadian insider point of view on a on a certain topic, um, say uh, my participation in something like the Asian Restaurant Awards um, or for other publications that might be looking for you know like um, the Asian food scene here in Toronto and and just happens to be you know I'm a food writer but I'm also Chinese I'm probably a person <laughs> you know it's just not say by default, but I'm like, yeah, I I do know the Asian food scene. So it all works out that way uh, for both of us Um, or that they need interpretation on a tradition. So I know that like say CBC life two years ago for Chinese, I guess, Lunar New Year um, had asked me if I could explore the story about looking at um, Asian Canadians, or I had also used it as a Canadian who have an Asian background, sort of looking at their interpretation of uh, what Lunar New Year means. And then I had took that, taken that and uh, ran with it in a way that I looked at three different generations of Asian Canadians or those of Asian uh, background who are now Canadians, um, but of different ages. So one was a, a lady who had been born in Hong Kong and then moved here and is now has been here for many, many decades. Another was a lady who was born here and completely didn't know her heritage, but only started rediscovering it um, in the last number of years and starting to, I guess, um, make a lot of grounds and leeway in her community uh, with that sort of um, understanding and pride. And then the third one was me, who, you know, I kind of have my foot in both worlds. Um, and I guess in the younger, the youngest sense, you know, have that appreciation of the cultures, but I'm not bound by them either. So it was one of those explorations in a in a piece where with us all having that as our background, but different lenses to kind of see what Lunar New Year or the traditions and customs really means to us. So that's, I think, one of the examples of how um, being specifically Asian Canadian has uh, has has been an asset, I guess. Um, now that I think of it, maybe like four or five years ago, when when there started to become a little bit more i think there was more attention paid to the fact that you know that we knew we have a very like we know we have a very diverse food scene here in toronto but i don't Mm -hmm. think it was an active thing where people were like we need to talk about all these various cuisines even though we know that you know 
uh, all these individuals are here. We all embrace it. We enjoy, you know, there's going to be the people who enjoy, you know, Chinese food or, or, or whatever else. Um, but I don't think that really became a very tangible thing until around like just a handful of years ago. No, really, because I feel like before that you'd have restaurants and, you know, it'd be like, okay, this one's like Asian fusion. This one's all these things. There's French, there's French, there's Italian and such. And people just kind of categorize those are those, those restaurants. They're well-known, they're established, they're, um, the staples. And when people talk about restaurants, that's what they're talking about. And then if you go out dining, say for Chinese food or whatever else, it's just things that you eat. Do you understand what I mean? It's like that classification of the two. And then somehow, maybe about four or five years ago, I'm not saying that this is the case. Like, don't, don't put this out as a thesis, but it's just like four or five years ago, then people started to recognize, actually, no, these can be elevated and are considered, you know, places that we would we would put in the same category that we would um, make an effort to make a reservation, make an evening out of just like any of these other, like more traditionally um I don't want to say traditionally fancy restaurant, like a, like I said, French or Italian or thing. You know, when you go out for that, you're going out for that. The fine or or whatever fine, fine dining, dining is nowadays, right? Um, so I don't think then that's kind of the thought behind what I'm kind of very messily stumbling around into uh, of saying how I don't think then it became really an an, an actual conscious thing of saying oh well you know because uh, we're talking about mm-hmm. a specific regional asian maybe that's it maybe it's just at that point then people start realizing that it's not just an overall umbrella type of cuisine there are so many kind of different mm-hmm. aspects with it uh, that any cuisine especially we're talking about asian cuisine has that regional um, aspect of it and when you're talking about asian cuisine it could be everything from you know shanghainese to like cantonese to Sichuan and all that and so what are you talking about specifically and that's when i think there was more curiosity when people were like oh what do you mean it's not just like chicken balls and fried rice and and you know like noodles um that there is that the, the, that sort of depth behind it and then maybe that's when individuals start going okay well there's obviously more to this so maybe we should go and tap into the diaspora who obviously know more about it and mm-hmm. i feel like that really was in, within that last i think five six five four five years oh and there has to be someone from you like someone like yourself has to cover that because i couldn't imagine a white man with a pen and paper going to like a dim sum restaurant and just being like are we taking a are we gonna pause this <laughs> going to be another conversation altogether because don't forget for the longest time um much of the food critics like the actual like putting on that food critic hat uh within the city or even within the country there was only a handful they they all were they all were Mm -hmm. caucasian and caucasian males and females but they were all caucasian and um so because of that i think that that's where they set that standard of dining as always being in those realms that they were more familiar with um, and mm-hmm. then, then when it started to shift into a little bit more, I don't call it color and flavor, but definitely a lot more diversity. That's when, um, that's when I think more people were open to that concept. And then that real zest or lust for it became a thing. And now, um, I think we're, we're really lucky 
that there is that interest because now we all can pursue it and there's so much to discover, right? And for us who live in Toronto, um, it's a super treat because we really don't, we don't really have to travel in order to be able to travel with our taste buds. So we just have to possibly drive to the other end of yeah. the city, but it's not like we have to get on a plane for that. Uh, sorry, Reina. <laughs> do you miss that? I was going to ask, do you miss, Reina, do you, now that you're in a small, small town in Germany, do you miss going down the street and be like food 100 <laughs> like oh joe and i talked about this today the beautiful thing about toronto is that exactly like we were just saying like you can wake up one day and be like i want ethiopian for lunch and then you go to an ethiopian for you know place and then you'd be like oh you know what i think i want egyptian for dinner and then you go there and then the next day you can go and have like i don't know fried chicken and then you then go get i don't know go to like an irish pub you can just do everything in as you know, like a cosmopolitan city like Toronto, like New York and all of that. And so, yeah, I definitely took that for granted when I was still in Canada. Uh, on a more lighter note, I acknowledge my Asian-ness uh, when I make fun of myself and saying that, you know, if anyone asks, you know, what I do or who I am, and I'm like, you know, I'm kind of, I blend into the crowd because I'm like one of those other Asian girls who takes pictures of food, right? So, <laughs> so I will embrace that Asian-ness there. Um, but I do have to... I feel like you're the original, but you actually get paid for it. Yeah. But I do have to <laughs> emphasize that, you know, as a professional... I do my shoots scheduled separately from, you know, like, you know, bombarding, you know, a table uh, at, at meal time and making all my <laughs> friends like wait for the food to get cold before, you know, they're allowed to eat or anything like that. I, I feel like there's a time and place for that. So uh, if it's work related, uh, definitely, you know, I don't I don't try to, uh, uh, I guess, dampen anyone else of my uh, any of my dining companions experiences. Uh, although the really great friends are always like, they know what to do. They're like, do you want to take a picture of my food? <laughs> sometimes I feel like, it's great. It's okay. Just, you know, just enjoy it. It's all good. Cause we're going out to eat and have, you know, socialize and have a good time together. And other times I might be like, yeah, your, your food looks really good. Can I just, I'll take a picture of that. So how does that actually work um, when you're, let's say, writing an article or uh, doing a series on restaurants or something? Do you go and eat on your own during like regular business hours and eat it and then take photos and write about it? Or do you go on a separate time when they're closed or something? Uh, it's both. So um, if it's, I, I don't, I don't know if, if uh, using the word personal research, because everything is now personal research, because basically my social time is, um, it, you know, any of the, any of the meals or because everything goes uh, centers around eating, right? Anything is fodder for, potential future write-ups or roundups or whatever else it could be. So because of that, um, I always have that in mind. And hence, I would have my, say, now nowadays, you know, my cell phone, and I might snap a shot or two uh, just for posterity, like just for my own documentation. Like with if I'm dining out with friends, like we were just kind of joking about earlier, I might do that just because you never know. That can come in handy later on. It might be jogging my memories like, oh, where did I go? And I remember there was this really interesting, I don't know, green sauce. Now you can jog your memory and take a look, and then you can go back and follow up. And that's in the follow-up, that's where I would either if I if I needed a picture, uh, then I would schedule something, you know, off time or whatever with the restaurant, you know, something that uh, that works for them uh, and it won't interrupt their usual business services. Or if that picture actually turned out fine, then I might just go with that too. Because I'll confess, ladies, like I mentioned earlier with Flickr and everything, it's been many decades that I've been doing this, and also yearbook. I, 
I'm I'm okay with it. You know, I'm pretty fast and I'm pretty efficient. And I would say uh, most of the time, you're too modest. Well, you could just say you're amazing. Very. You're too modest. Yeah, you are a great. This is not the podcast. No, thank, modest. thank this you so much. This is a podcast to flex that you are a talented individual and that you are a photographer. Oh well, thank you so much. I will. You know, you can send me your invoices yeah. afterwards. That's right. We're hype. <laughs> I'll send you a picture of food instead. We're <laughs> Um, but no, I mean, like, I think that's the one thing is that, um, because technology is pretty great these days, uh, sometimes you can get away with, uh, things like that. But most of the time, if we're doing something, uh, professionally, then it would be, um, it would be scheduled. Uh, you did touch on, on one thing as well. And, and, um, was your friends being like, sure, do you want to take a picture? Like, do you, you know, like they're being supportive. I am curious to know who are, you know, for those who are listening, episode three in season one we did talk about boardroom of allies uh and this is such a great opportunity for us to ask who are your boardroom of allies you know besides the whole you know going out and gathering the material and interacting with people for work everything else i do is very so independent i'm doing it from home or um, without without the company of others so i always feel isolated um from the most of the world if you understand what i mean even even before the world, uh, before the pandemic. Um, so anybody who express interest or support in any certain way, like reading articles, like I said, like, I don't know who reads these things, especially, and I think that's the one thing I've realized that people might read your articles, but they never look at the byline. So hence the whole being forwarded my own articles, like, you should read this, it's interesting. I'm like, thank you. <laughs> the most thing I got from that, exactly, I the that. thing I got from that is that you thought it was interesting or interesting enough to share with me, because maybe the writer has is on the same wavelength as myself. Go figure. Like, I that, that writer's me, but you know, it's all good. <laughs> um, so it's just, it's just incredibly encouraging because it's a pretty lonely path. Like you don't know, uh, who really is reading, uh, because it, I never even thought of it that way. It is a very solo career that you have. Yeah. And I think that's the one thing is that, uh, the only, the only thing I feel like is as feedback that I'm doing okay is the sense is the fact that I continue to get work or I, my, like the people that I'm working with, the publications, the editors that I'm working with, um, they're still, you know, they're still interested in my work or they're still commissioning or they've reached out with opportunities and stuff. To, sorry, to summarize then, uh, the silent readers of your content would be in your boardroom. Is that what you mean? And then there are a few individuals that I think, um, whether or not they know it, uh, it's just whenever I hear from them, it just seems to give me that that boost. So um, one one friend, I guess you could say, uh, John, he's been an incredible cheerleader. Um, like it's been since the day when we first both learned that we wrote for publications, him more in the area of architecture and stuff. Uh, it's been amazing. We actually know each other from the gym. So it's not even related to anything with work or science or anything. But somehow, like I said, in conversation, uh, that came up. And since then, anytime he's seen work of mine come out, he's always been like, you know, like, you know, you go, Renee, or, you know, high five or anything. And it's just been so amazing. Um, and of course, he himself, he's amazing. He just uh, last year came out with a book um, that he authored called The Kitchen. And it's, uh, what is it called? I the Kitchen, A Journey Through Time and Home of uh, Julia Child, Georgia O'Keeffe, you know, Elvis Presley and others to look for basically the perfect 
kitchen design. Um, and so he's obviously, like I said, super accomplished and fantastic. And I can't help but cheer him on anytime I see anything of his comes up. Uh, but yeah, every time, you know, when he does that, a high five or in person, he'd be like, give me a fist bump and all that. It's just, it just makes the difference. It just feels like things are, are like an extra pep in the step, you know, and things are just great. Um, and then I think uh, another person is a former editor of mine from Toronto Star Travel, Jennifer Bain, um, who still at to this day, even though, you know, she stepped away from uh, that role and has moved on to other opportunities, um, she still sends me like, you know, I saw this, I think this would be great for you. This sounds fantastic. Or, um, or been really generous with her time and other opportunities. Like somehow she's also able to balance like the whole world. Like I mentioned, you know, she's like an editor, but she also uh, consistently pumps out like articles while she's traveling. She has a family, she's rebuilding, you know, a home and it's on different sides of the country and all of this while she's earning her I MFA, which is Masters of Fine Arts. And like, it's just, it's just crazy. And she's able to handle all of this. So I'm like, you know, <laughs> I'm just all in my own little world. <laughs> You're a superwoman. Yeah. <laughs> That's how I feel about Reina. <laughs> Reina's like, I'm learning German and also doing this and this and this. I'm like, I drew something today. And that was like my pinnacle of my day. <laughs> well, learning <laughs> like, German is just I, part of like the survival kit. So I don't know if it's that amazing. <laughs> oh, but, <laughs> but German's not easy. So I can only Yeah, no, imagine. it's not. <laughs> I'm like coaching and it's like, oh my gosh. But it's great because it like motivates Exactly. You, right? um, like that's like having those like really um, go-getters in your life. Exactly. And then, I mean, then there's the one friend when you, when you mentioned this, or I guess the boardroom, I was thinking, oh, there's this one friend that I met literally on my last, um, my last excursion out of the country um ellen and she's just been this fireball like honestly she lights a fire under me to always aim yes. higher and bigger i mean it's one of those like she's like a guru in in finance and you know an amazing investment writer and from the states you know uh and but we've had so many real like real life long hour chats about you know being women in um, in this industry in media and and I, if anything I think she's given me I don't want to say the confidence but really that boost this past year um, to approach and and ask for things and this sounds I hope it's not politically incorrect uh, but she's like approach it as if you are a white man or or at least the entitled yeah, Kim says yeah. this all the time. Or at least the entitlement of one. And I'm like, what? Because I think we're always second guessing. We're like, well, I think I'm like 99% qualified, but I'm not 100% qualified. So I guess I'll just hold back. And I still have that. And she's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. A white man would not do that. He'd have no experience oh, and still yeah. go for Preach. it. And I'm like, oh, that's true. <laughs> maybe, maybe I should, uh, you know take the moment and, you know, I, I don't want to say like, uh, go after things that I'm not qualified for, but at least, you know, make attempt and try. So, uh, everything, not letting those saboteurs take over you. Yeah, probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I think that's the thing is that, uh, I'd always been approaching this whole industry as like, how do I survive, you know, in the field? How do I stay afloat, keep going and doing what I'm doing? Um, but, after having met Ellen, it's just like, it's not just that. It's like, how do I also attain the appropriate compensation to know what I'm worth? Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you, I see an opportunity, you know, to go for it and don't second guess or not think that I can't do it or do it in a conservative approach. Um, and so I, I think it's just having a little bit more of that fire just to go, you know what, why not? The worst they can say is no. Or in this case, usually it's you don't hear back. <laughs> uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> you just don't hear back. So, um, so I think that's the one thing is that uh, it's helped me for a few of the opportunities where I'm like, you know, this is maybe a lot of work. And I know in the past, I'd always said, you know, it's a lot of work, but I'll do it because it's a good opportunity or whatever else. Now it's like, maybe I could just say, hey, do you think you can you know, I appreciate this opportunity. I think it's really fantastic. I'd love to do it, but are you a little bit more flexible? Can we negotiate? So I, I never would yes, have done girl. it like that. So, uh, and I, I don't know. It, it's kind of like it's been a decade doing this. I feel like I, I guess that there's any point in time I should, you know, take things by the horn and just say I think I deserve just a little bit more. Um, that's now. So no, I don't <laughs> think you do. You do I'm still deserve working more. on that. So <laughs> you deserve more. Um, but yeah, so it's just uh, it's it's been one of those um, great times, I guess, in the last year, despite pandemic or whatnot, um, to have met um, to met Ellen and and helping me realize that I can uh, probably. Aww, that's really <laughs> nice. Shout out to Ellen, John, Jennifer, yeah, Jennifer. Jennifer. <laughs> Love Look at you three. You made the cut. <laughs> And all the silent readers out there. Oh my there, goodness, the yes, please. Fans. Thank you. Um, to everyone who reads, I really appreciate it. Honestly, it keeps me working. Before um, we wrap up, I just want to ask you two like flash quick round questions. One, what is the best part about your career? So sorry, this is like a pre-pandemic question, but what's the best part about your career? And two, where's the furthest you've been to for <laughs> okay. an eating and traveling gig? Um, the best part of my career is definitely all the people that I meet. Um, it's, yeah, I, it's like the individuals and the stories that they're able to share. Like Everyone's so inspirational, honestly. Um, everyone has something that you can learn from them. Uh, and I think that's, that's the one thing is that, you know, that's what I miss most of not being able to be out there and, um, and meeting you know, even people in within the city, you know, because now we're all stuck at home. Uh, it's just, you can learn something from everyone. So that, I think that really is the best thing about, um, what I do and then having the honor of sharing their stories. Um, so that's one big thing. And then the second one was, where's the furthest I've traveled to eat? Uh, geographically speaking, I guess it would be on the opposite end of the world. So what would it be like Australia, New Zealand? I was just in New Zealand last February, right before the, I know exactly. Imagine if I stayed there an extra week, I would be there. Like, (laughs) I can't come, not to say that I, (laughs) and I'd be, I I wouldn't be too heartbroken about that. Just to say, you know, like it was, it's a beautiful country. Um, but, uh, I feel like that or the opposite side, anything like we're talking about anything in what um like deep in asia and stuff. your points your travel points must be off the roof <laughs> oh i don't know about that because i don't know if you know most of us uh travel travel writers really fly on like economy or basic it's like the lowest of the low. so and you know how it is like oh you flew all that now you can exchange it for maybe a 25 dollar coupon <laughs> or gets your ticket so you know but i yeah i just hope that especially since not we're not traveling for the last year that some of those points don't because you know now they're all expiring right that they can push those a little bit uh so that we can at least renew them to redeem for i don't know a trip hopefully a trip further than further than new york i know here's a little gift fly to buffalo new york exactly (laughs) Amazing. Uh, Raina, do you have any other questions for Renee? No, that's it. Okay, well then I would love to tell the audience where they can find you and what you have on the go. So I think uh, the easiest way to find me is either uh, 
through Twitter because I'm not on Instagram. <laughs> and at Twitter, my handle is um, at R-S-S-U-E-N. Uh, if not, then my website has updates to most of my articles uh, or at least links to the publications where, uh, where you can find them. And that's www.reneesoon.com. So R-E-N-E-E-S-U-E-N. Dot com. Uh, and other than that, uh, Flickr. People can find you on Flickr. I guess you can find me on Flickr too if you if you bring that. And back. you can actually go through those two channels in order to find my Flickr site, uh, which these days has more of, I guess, um, just some article updates and all that. Uh, any of uh, the photos from all these past adventures that you're hearing about, you just have to go into the the treasure trove of the search bar and that's why i love Flickr. uh not to put down instagram or anything because i know that there's a great community there but if you wanted to see these random things that we had talked i don't think we specifically talked about any particular place or dish but if you wanted to see what a dish of bung looks like you can definitely (laughs) (laughs) type that and you can look and you're like actually it's not that bad it it looks pretty tasty but just trust me it doesn't have the best aroma. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there's your service there. Uh, but um, no, and, and then other, other than that, uh, through those two sites, you can definitely find me on email. Always happy to, to, to help with anything that, you know, if it's, I don't know what we can recommend these days, but if there's any questions, I'm always happy to entertain them. And if there's any, I guess, interesting stories or food wrecks or anything, I'm always open to hear those as well. So that's my call out for for the your audience thank you so much for having me on ladies thank Thank you you, renee this was a fantastic conversation thanks so much to our guest renee for joining us on the show again she explained where you could find her all the stuff will be on the show description as usual um and overall i think she was fantastic and i'm hungry after listening to her talk and i miss traveling after hearing about her like whirlwind trips and stuff yeah it was it was interesting to see it from her perspective of someone who relies on traveling yeah and, and food and restaurants on an industry that's been so heavily impacted and i didn't think about that until this call. I don't know why I didn't think about that. I mean, I guess we think about those people who are making the food and people who are mm. like directly in the travel industries. But yeah, I hate to admit, I kind of forgot about the people who actually elevate those profiles. So yeah, yeah, and, and also the fact that um, she's able to write and, and through her freelancing still is quite amazing because I know it's been really tough for everyone in this industry. So, mm-hmm. but it just goes to show that having a freelance type of position is also a great thing to have yeah. for some people who are scared about making that jump. It exactly. doesn't mean you're going to be like this, you know, down and out freelancer or artist or whatnot. Like yeah. it's a, le- it's a viable career. And, and I say that not as like a facetious way, but like, because we're Asian, you put down Asian and freelance Parents are going to revolt. Like, our oh. parents would be like, what? <laughs> I mean that in that context. Oh, do you mean that you're going to go and work at multiple hospitals? Oh, okay. Yeah, sure. <laughs> that's true, right? It's like, it's like that's like a, a fear for a lot of our parents, right? You're like, oh, she's a, she's a photographer, a writer who freelances. Like, that would be scary. But once you see their work and see the amazing things that they do and how they've been able to pivot, like, for example, Renee... It's not scary. Her mom's perfectly fine with it now. And it's like, oh, you have to see that for other parents to buy into it. Yeah. Like, 
So I think she's probably, not probably, she's definitely a great role model for a lot of us. And like you said, I think she's a perfect example of someone who pivoted from a completely different industry into another one, but she took her transferable skills with her, right? The writing aspect, the research aspect, looking at the science behind it and the storytelling piece. Um, Yeah, I think it was just such a beautiful pivot that she was able to make, so... Yeah, thank you, Renee, for sharing with us your story. Very inspiring. Uh, Thank you for all our listeners who are tuning into our new season. We are so excited to to be on this journey. Uh, We're so excited to be back. So again, if you love this episode, if you want to see more guests, click subscribe. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Kimberly. I'm Raina, and you've been listening to Obsessed with ABG's Aspirations, Boardrooms, and Goals. Perfect.